Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Stuart Sandys. Stuart is a fishmonger who heads family business Sandys Fishmongers Limited in Twickenham, Middlesex. Stuart, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hello, thank you for inviting me to be on. It's an absolute pleasure having you, Stuart. Now, um, leadership as a whole is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the present COVID-19 situation and numerous business leaders having to adapt to get their businesses through this current pandemic. Uh, Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been quite a challenge. Um, It's definitely been one of the... uh yeah, one of the most interesting few months, I can just say that. Um, it's uh, You've had to dig deep and, uh, fight, you know, on all your experience because, you know, as a bit when you've been doing your business, and I've been on my own now for 15 years, um, before that we were a family business, um, and my dad and my mum retired, but everything that you've learned, you've had to draw on, and you've uh, when you're in the food industry like we are, it wasn't, you know, for me, uh, it wasn't an, even an option that uh, you you closed or you restricted. You just basically had a duty to your clients and your customers and the public to uh, Kate stay open and provide them with the food. Um, so you just had to two things that you had to focus on was one. Um, ascertaining what food you could get and keeping the supply chain going and adapting that and two more probably more important well as important is keeping your staff feeling safe and motivated that they wanted to come to work that day and do the same job so um, yeah that was the two main facets that you had to focus on. Yeah I can imagine as a leader as well in during this time it's been quite a challenge keeping sort of stuff motivated because I can imagine people will have certain worries and it can be quite easy to slip into panic mode and being able to sort of keep a cool head even when you may not have all of the answers that's been incredibly important as well hasn't it yeah it's um I'm very much a a hands-on person anyway so I think it's important that it did help because I'm on the coalface each day as it is and like it's me who is there with them it would be harder if you're just some uh person in an office just demanding that you know the stop's going to stay open and then just trying to make it happen and just mm. in telling the people like it's the fact that I, i'm on there with them and you're part of it and you're doing the job with them um you and you're trying to lead them that's that that for me is important you know you, you you're there and you're understanding and you you see firsthand the challenges and and the worries, um, and also you know it was the morale of trying to communicate with them. Like we do group texts and we go do chats, and you're keeping an eye on everybody's mental health, and you know making them aware of the backup schemes that you have. They know about our. Uh, counseling programs and everything mm. so you make him aware that there's help there if they're struggling with it you know you, you made sure that the PPE was um, PPC rather sorry uh, was available um, that, you, that they're safe and just trying to trying to figure it out but also that 
you know, you weren't barking orders, you were, you were sympathizing with them and, you know, trying to figure it out because nobody had the answers of what was staying open, what wasn't, will we be, they, you know, they wanted answers, but you're trying to say to them, this is how we're figuring it out. You weren't just trying to come up with rubbish and just trying to smooth it over. You're saying, well, we don't know, but this is our plan and this is my plan. And this is, we're just going to go for as long as we can and we're going to see how it goes And if in the end. Because nobody knew. You know, at, the, at the beginning, they just went for lockdown and you just went, I have no idea. So, but you've just got to show optimism and uh, just convey to them that we are frontline um, and we have a responsibility and we're in the service industry. So that's for us to, you've got to bring the goods, basically. This is what we signed up for. Um, so you're not, I said, um, during it, I said, you, you know, in one of my texts, I put, um, and I was talking to him, I said, you know, on the Thursday night, they won't be opening their doors and clapping you. But the customers that, and the old dears that have been phoning and then when some of the old people found out you, you were serving um, and delivering to them, um, if you needed to, you know, you got tears out of the old girls. You know, I said, that's your round of applause. I said, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. So you conveyed that to them and, you know, made them feel like they're important, which they are. Um, and so they feel like they, they, there's a reason why they're going to get up tomorrow morning and come to work. And basically, because you don't understand it and it, nobody knew the full risk that you put yourself under. So it's, yeah, you just had to make sure that you, they understood that you understood, you know, you just weren't arrogant at that and that we're all in it together. So I think that was important. Absolutely. And it seems that showing that humility as a leader has really paid dividends in the sense that it's been leading by example, being on a level with employees and really showing that you're in very much in the thick of it with them. Because when you have sort of corporate structures in business where the leadership quite often is um, almost cut off or inaccessible from those on the ground, it can feel like figureheads are really um, at a bit of a distance and it can always feel a little bit alienating. Whereas in an environment such as this, for example, that's very much different, isn't it? And the people who remain close to their employees in that sense will be sort of getting the greatest dividends, I suppose, at the minute, because it will be their employees that are willing to muck in and really sort of fight for the cause. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think a lot of people have been talking about what will happen afterwards and how this will change the industry. And I think one thing that uh, this whole situation has shown that the bigger companies struggled because they're so set in their ways and they have to be. Because when you're a colossal, you know, huge company, you have to have systems in place. You have to have processes and accountability. There's, it, they're, they're there for a reason. But the downside is that you can't flip that in a heartbeat. You know, uh, we had to basically change our operating uh, procedures and our business model overnight and, you know, come up with three extra drivers where we only have one one of our main drivers went on isolation because his wife was on uh, just about to have a baby. He, he literally had his baby yesterday. So, um, and so he went on his two weeks isolation in the middle of all that. And so you literally had to find, luckily people stepped in and because, you know, if you show humility and kindness and everything, then people are willing to help you. Uh, if you just go around and bark orders and um, just become a bit of an arrogant twat, really, when the chips are down, people aren't going to come and to your aid, I don't think. Um, so luckily we had like friends of the shop that would come and 
help us out and they're still helping us out uh, and doing the best they can because they you know they 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 feel like it's they feel worthwhile you know they feel needed and i think that in today's society that can soon get and especially in larger corporations you can you know that can sort of element uh, gets looked aside too often I think you're absolutely right. And in a similar way, when we talk about arrogance, do you think that some people in leadership roles are maybe a little bit blinded by certain things such as like short term gain, sort of big inflated salaries and maybe kind of lose sight of long term goals? Um, I think so. Yeah, it's it's like the suited and the booted um, like. It's, it's for the here and the now, and um, uh, you know, not everybody in big businesses is is like that. But it's because they're driven by the shareholders, or even the the initial gains, and they have their, their accountability is different. Um, they forget the the grassroots of why we're doing this, and for us, it's like the respect of your clientele and your customers is more important. So if we got an order wrong or we did something wrong or something wasn't right, that that affected us. Not that you're worried about losing that customer. It's the fact that you, you need to try get up tomorrow and try harder because um, like the, my biggest part is that I'm a perfectionist. So it, like that affects you. If that doesn't affect you, that you've done something wrong and that you don't want to improve on that tomorrow, then why are you in that job? So you need to have that passion and that need to be better than you were yesterday. And if you haven't got that, then you're you're not going to go anywhere. You may climb the ladder through different, but as a person, you're not going to go anywhere, Um, which is, you know, self-development is more important than business development, I think. Yeah. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, Stuart, because I think certain things, you can learn certain skills within certain professions, but I think a certain determination and a willingness to succeed does need to come from within, essentially. And what I also um, think um, is quite important to uh, consider as well is that during this time, we've heard a lot of stories about how people have really sort of brought the best out in themselves. And you hear that said about times of adversity, don't you? It brings out the best in people. You really sort of see um, who stands up and is counted when the chips are down. And I think as a leader and even as an employee, having that experience of being thrown out of your comfort zone and having to sort of push the boundaries, that's hugely important for improvements as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's although I mean people have been coming in and they're like going, "Oh God, you're really, really busy," and you're like, um, "It's great," and you're like going, "Yeah," but there's also you. Yes, your other follow. Like we lost our trade clients like overnight, like obviously suspended, and you but you saw them in a bad situation and struggling and going, "How the hell am I going to get through the next few months?" So and you're you're. You, you can't plan on that. You, you're reacting to a situation. You haven't built your company up to be at this level of business. But what you have done over the years is that you've built your company so that it can handle it. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's like building a building that is, um, hopefully that earthquake never happens. But if you build it so it can withstand an earthquake, it's going to be still standing at the end of that earthquake. Um, but if you're just arrogant and you just build it and think, oh, the earthquake's never going to come, then you, 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 yeah, 
it, it will soon crumble. Um, so you just always try and prepare. I mean, we literally, when this happened, we were trying to expand. I mean, we were just literally in the middle of building work, so trying to double and bring on our new website, our new e-commerce, uh, brand new. And so everything had to be rushed. And we, but we just went, no, what can we do? But we'd rather do less, more, better than trying to rush and knock out uh, the website. The people want to talk to you. Um, they don't want to do ego. Just press a few buttons and order. Uh, the old people, especially, they want to talk to somebody on the phone if they they need comfort. And it was trying to be uh, humanity, really, and just trying to figure out how to get it done. So, yeah. And I think it highlights the importance of proactivity there as well as reactivity, being able to plan for certain eventualities, even though, of course, there is a lot of uncertainty at the moment. That's massive because you need to, of course, be ready um, in the long term for things that may change. And then you can also balance that out with the reactivity side of when there are changing circumstances. If you've got plans in place, you can then make much more measured and effective decisions, can't you? It was, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think anybody could ever plan for this. And obviously in the future, um, you know, this will be on everybody's radar, you know, insurance premiums, cover for events, everything like that, staff-wise, you know, this will be, this can happen now. So people going forward will be, how can you, what happens if this happens again or, you know, um, we have a second spike or whatever. So I think it will make more people nervous. I think, uh, as uh, like you say, people, it's it's shown, I think a lot of people, it might bring us back down to earth a lot. I think hopefully a lot of people like, you know, just living life on the edge and, which is not a bad thing. It keeps you, keeps you fresh. But I think a lot of people are like, oh no, you know, it's not a perfect world and, you know, we just can't be going on at a hundred miles an hour. And it's, I think it's been good for a lot of people to pull back and like reflect on lives, on relationships, families, business, where they're going, um, how fragile life is really. Um, and I think, so although it's, is the economy will recover and mm. people will go, but you know, I think a lot of people have taken, things that are taken for granted I think are very much more focused on now and I think I think we can only come out of this to be better people um, and if you don't come out of it being a better person then you know that I don't think there was much help for you anyway so Exactly. And um, if we do um, think about the uh, the future um, again, uh, Stuart, before we do uh, wrap things up on today's programme, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for the business and what you hope to achieve in that time as well. Not just in navigating the current situation, but also in emerging from the other side of the pandemic as well. Well, I mean, it's it, you can't plan on the, the current business level that you've been doing over the past few weeks is again you have to acknowledge that it's reactionary um but for us it's you have to strive forward and you think well people on the positive side of people like looking at the people that have been there for them we're going to have to harness so you we're still trying to push forward our business plans of like bringing on new products, bringing in wines, bringing on the e-commerce, increasing the deliveries, which is where we were going anyway. And we've pushed forward with the building throughout the the problems. So we will be ready and to take the next steps. 
Um, and just because people have been enjoying their food, enjoying living, you know, and taking, like as I said, um, those little things for granted. So we want to be there ready to uh, help them. And then if customers have felt more loyal because we've been there for them or we've provided a service for them that they've been happy with, uh, we want to be there to move forward and rebuild and help the country rebuild. And I think of course, holding true to uh, those values will hold the business in very good stead to do just that, Stuart. Um, we are um, out of time just about on uh, today's programme, but I have to say it's been a really pleasurable and also insightful experience having you um, on the air with me. And I think it would actually be great for the listeners if when we start to see the um, the fog lifting in the next few months, we could perhaps um, revisit this and have you back on the programme just to catch up on how the uh, business is doing but also see just how some of those changes are being borne out and whether we are really remembering what we've taken for granted before um, but for now I've got to say thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on the air and speak with me today it's been brilliant thank you for having me it's been a pleasure it's been wonderful Stuart thank you so much that was thank Stuart you. Sandys um, coming up next um, on the programme today I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss um, Sir Andrew is the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and as a player Andrew is one of the only three England captains I should say to win the Ashes both home and away he's also the England captain with the highest amount of test victories in history um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew Strauss and that's coming up next. Hello and welcome, I'm Jonathan White and today we're joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here, thank you. The pleasure is all of ours, you know, and you've had a distinguished career as I said both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... 
I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top 
bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, 
perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the times. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the england captaincies have done to prepare me for the role i, I think i was comfortable leading i was i knew mm. the environment i knew 
what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. 
Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about well, it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... a uh, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um 
I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.